Great. Today I am welcoming to our studio here at the Coastal Front, a member of Parliament for Vancouver Kingsway, Don Davies. As the NDP critic for health and deputy critic for public safety and emergency preparedness, Don has introduced more legislation in the House of Commons than any MP in the country. It's quite a title to hold, Don. <laughs> Some of the legislation includes free post-secondary tuition for students with special needs, a national school nutrition program, and implementing a law that require floor, uh, floor crossers to obtain the agreement of the voters who elect them. Prior to being elected in 2008 as the NDP representative for Vancouver Kingsway, Don was a lawyer, labor representative, and policy advisor where he worked to improve human resource practices, employment standards, and transportation policy. Don is also a family man who's been married for over 30 years. He's the father of three and a proud grandfather as well. Typically, we no normally have our guests like Don come in to talk about a wide range of uh, topics, but today is a special one. Today, we are going to talk about something that's near and, here to, near and dear to Don's heart, as well as myself, and that's about universal dental care in Canada, or the lack thereof at this point. So welcome to the show, Don. Thanks for coming in today. It's a pleasure to be here, Andrew. So universal dental care is something that we don't actually have today. We have uh, programs that exist in our country that help out those who are in need and don't have proper coverage because most people get coverage through their employment or they have the financial means to just cover it themselves. But I, I don't think that's your mark, your, your target. You're trying to help out the Canadians, the many Canadians, I think it was this number is like 6 million Canadians who don't currently have any kind of coverage for dental care today. Is that, have I got that right? Actually, the numbers are much higher than that. Okay. Um, the Canadian Dental Association says that about 32% of Canadians don't have access to regular, uh, any kind of dental insurance. So that'd be about 12 million Canadians. But I think what you're thinking of, Andrew, is, and I'm sure we'll get to talk about this, is uh, we put a proposal forward to cover everybody who has a median family income under $90,000 a year who doesn't have dental coverage okay. as a sort of first step towards universal coverage. And that is about six and a half million Canadians. Okay. Okay. Where did this come from? Where did you, did you come up with this idea or did, was it somebody else within the NDP and you just carried it, carried the torch from here? Oh, well, I'd love to say that I, it was my original idea, but I think, I think I got to harken back to Tommy Douglas and, um, you know, it seems like ancient history now, but Tommy Douglas in the 1960s in a minority liberal NDP government, um, tried to push the federal government to bring in, of course, public health care. And at that time, Tommy Douglas's dream was not just hospital coverage and physician coverage, but comprehensive coverage from head to toe. So he included things like pharmacare. Uh, he included dental care, eye care, auditory care. I don't think uh, mental health was, was included at that time because our sensibilities have really evolved from that time. And uh, but at that time, uh, the the first incremental step that he was successful in in getting the Pearson government to bring in was uh, the establishment of coverage for hospitals and physician care. And interestingly, when I went back and read uh, the reports uh, about how we were going to accomplish this at the time, the only reason that we didn't include dental care in the 1960s was not for cost. It was because there was a shortage of dentists in Canada at that time. So they felt that if they provided comprehensive coverage for all Canadians, we didn't have the ability to deliver it. Uh, of course, that's not the case today. But so uh, to fast forward to today, um, uh, I introduced the motion in uh, in 2015 to to establish pharmacare because I think it's time that we 
pick up that idea of expanding our public healthcare system to include more than just physician and hospital care. And so we did the work on pharmacare in the last parliament. And then after the 2019 election, I introduced a motion uh, in January of 2020 to get the government to study dental care. So, okay. uh, and the idea was basically just, you know, we're proud of our healthcare system, but it's not comprehensive. Yeah. And uh, we'll get into dental care in a few minutes, I guess. But uh, I mean, in terms of the, the why, but to me, it's one of the most glaring omissions from public health care in this country. So just to make sure, for kind of dumb it down to layman's terms, in Canada today, we have universal health care, but it's not actually universal because it misses some key po- points here. And the one, the two you've mentioned, the first one was pharmacare. So that's basically being able to access medication. Um, so you can go to your doctor, you can get free assessment and have them tell you what's wrong with you or what you, treatment you need. But if it includes uh, medication, there's many times where you have to pay for it out of pocket. And then on top of that, when it comes to your mouth, mm-hmm. um, which seems odd to me that like we've omitted the mouth from the rest of the body, um, is not covered at all. There's there's really very, there's is there anything in Canada today? Like, is there anything close to what you are advocating for that already exists, maybe for a small segment of the population? No, there's nothing. Nothing, okay. Uh, there have been various attempts over the years by provincial governments to establish partial coverage for target populations, uh, like, for instance, uh, teeth cleaning for and exams for kids in okay. school, uh, those kinds of programs. But they have ebbed and flowed over the years and uh, essentially been abandoned whenever sort of fiscal situations tighten up. Because in it's, it's my view uh, that this is one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of universal coverage, so that everybody has a stake in it. It, most governments have eliminated those programs when when finances got tough because it only was a boutique program for right. people. Right. Okay. Two things I think we should start with before we dive into the sort of nuances around this program that you've you've, you've tabled and and that the um, report you've got you've had come back from the uh, this is the office of the parliamentary budget officer and you can explain to me what that is. But the two things I want to start with. One is I'd like you to spend a few minutes explaining to the listeners why you think this is important. We're not going to spend a lot of time because I, I bought into it a long time ago. I drank the Kool-Aid or used the toothpaste <laughs> already. So <laughs> so I'd like to spend some time on that. Um, and then I also want you to just maybe touch on the challenges of a provincial system that administers the healthcare system and you as a federal MP trying to roll something out at a federal level and how does that Mm-hmm. either support or conflict with one another. Sure. So I think there's there's a health imperative. There's a, I think, social justice imperative. There's actually even an economic imperative case to be made, I think, for, for dental care. So I'll deal with each of them sure. briefly in turn. It's kind of ridiculous that our public health care system covers our entire bodies, but we carve out this piece in here. Yeah. We'll cover your tonsils back, but right. not tonsils forward. Right. And then say that part is not covered by our public system. And you're on your own. So you can have good oral health, maybe even essential oral health, if you can pay for it. Now, there's no question now from a health point of view, poor oral health is linked with all sorts of, of more serious conditions. It's linked with cardiac problems. It, it, uh, it's linked with complications of diabetes, even pregnant women. It's linked to premature birth and even um, uh, low birth weight. So if you leave oral health issues to fester there it's not just a cosmetic issue it actually affects your your entire health Mm -hmm. um so 
as a matter of fact, uh, what, what did one dentist say to me that our public health system will cover every infection in your body except an oral infection. Mm -hmm. So it just doesn't make sense. It's completely irrational to carve this piece of your body out and, and not cover it. Second, from a social justice point of view, when I said that, call it a third, call it 33% of Canadians don't have any coverage, that's not just a number. If you delve into it and find out who those people are. Who are they? Yeah. Well, they are the most marginalized Canadians. They are poor people. They are single parent families. They are children. They are seniors. They are immigrants. Uh, they are women. And so uh, those groups uh, who already are marginalized in many ways suffer from uh, poor oral health and I think that there's is a very compelling social justice issue that access to oral health care or any health care, I think, in Canada, I think Canadians would agree, should not be based on the size of your wallet. Mm -hmm. There's a class issue to this. I mean, if someone walked into uh, your place of work and they applied for a job and they had no front teeth, we make assumptions out of people right away mm -hmm. uh, about that. Sure. Um, it's linked to your self-esteem. You wear it on your face which is a very personal part of our of our being. And it really, frankly, it affects our emotional well-being and our mental health. Mm -hmm. um, so people are embarrassed when they don't have, you know, proper, proper uh, oral health care. It affects their ability to get a job um, and, and all sorts and so of opportunities. So this speaks to the economic impact that you're talking about? Well, moving to that, okay. you're right. In that case, it does too, because when you have people who are unable to fulfill their potential, then there's a cost for economy. Yeah. There's something called cost-related non-adherence, which is a fancy term used in, in healthcare for uh, the extra costs that the system bears when you don't take care of something early on. Okay. So instead of you know spending $240 to fill your cavity, if we wait and that turns into an abscess, and that turns into an infection. And then, you know, 30 years down the road, it, it ends up bringing on premature cardiac issues and you're in intensive care and you cost the system $300,000. Uh, it would have been a lot more economic for the system to fix your cavity for 240 bucks early on. Mm -hmm. By the way, that's a very powerful argument for pharmacare as well. Mm -hmm. If you give people the medication that they need, you avoid them getting much more seriously ill later on in many conditions. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's, and, and that's quantifiable. Okay. So basically, you know, uh, it's better for our health. It's better for um, uh, for social justice and equality in our country, and it's uh, probably going to save our system bucks down the road too. So our idea in and in the NDP, we believe in universality. So what we would do is take our basket of services mm -hmm. that our public healthcare system covers and simply expand it to include necessary prescriptions for pharmacare and necessary dental care. You know, I can give all sorts of you know sort of silly simplifications, but you know, if you break your arm right now, I'll pack you downstairs, take you to the hospital, you'll go in, we'll fix your arm, out you go, you'll never pay a bill, the system will pay for it. I mean, we all pay for it, it's not mm -hmm. free, but it's covered by our system. But if you fell, fell down and broke your tooth in half, it's different. Yeah. Why? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. No, not at all. By the way, I want to say something else just that I, that I think is an astounding statistic that yeah. I, I recently learned. And that is that there's one million Canadians that have chewing difficulty because of poor oral health. Now that's a that's a staggering number, considering there's Amazing. 37 million Canadians, yeah. a million. And so if you think of what that impacts, if you have trouble chewing, then you have trouble with nutrition. Sure. And if you have trouble with nutrition- and Just been you drinking know, Slurpees all day long. Well, it's, you know, as my grandmother said, you are what you eat. And, <laughs> and when you have poor nutrition, the host of poor health outcomes that come from that, 
um, are are just you know it, it multiplies the impact. So it's just really a basic core part of our healthcare system that through historical weirdness, uh, lack of attention has has developed in our system, and I think it's time to address it. And by the way, I want to say that the hottest issue in healthcare that I have faced in my six years as health critic, as NDP health critic, is dental care. It's really? hotter than farm care. Yeah, and I think that's because, interesting. Uh, as I said, you know, 33% of Canadians. Well, everybody can relate to it because we all can. have mouths and hopefully we all have teeth, yeah. right? <laughs> and you know the thing is, I mean, this, uh, the one thing, you can't ignore a dental issue. You know, if no, you, you can't. Any of us that have ever had, yeah. you have a toothache, yeah. you got to deal terrible. with it. Oh, that's right. I mean, yeah. you, I mean, you can chew on, you know, some, you can get some, some painkillers, you can deal with it for a while, but you have to deal with it. Yeah. And because it's in your face, uh, you, you just have no choice. And by the way, that leads to extractions as well. Yeah. So people end up in the emergency departments. And so there's the cost on that system, and then they don't treat it properly. Instead of going to your wife and getting the, the, the issue fixed, mm -hmm. they go to emergency where they end up getting the teeth extracted, and that causes all sorts of problems. Yeah. Well, I've got a series of really pointed questions around this. We're going to jump yeah. into that in a sec. Let's jump to the contrast of federal jurisdiction and provincial administration of a healthcare system, and, and how does this fit into that? Well, it's funny. I, I often say that if we were sitting at a table in 1867 and we were divvying up federal provincial powers, I, I don't think we ever would have given health care to the provinces. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it didn't exist in 1867. Right. So we've got the reality, though, where health care is it's a shared jurisdiction. I mean, this is often misrepresented in politics that it's only provincial. It's actually shared. The Supreme Court of Canada has said that. So the provinces deliver it. But the federal government does have a role to play, and they through a couple different areas. And one is their spending power. Right. So that's the our funding, Medicare right? system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our Medicare system is basically one big financial arrangement. Right. Uh, it's a historic bribe. Mm -hmm. So the federal government, but they they legislate the Canada Health Act, and they say there's five principles in that act, and any province that agrees to meet those principles: universality, public administration, um, portability, accessibility, etc qualifies for uh, the federal health transfer. Any province could say no to that. They could back out ahead out of Medicare tomorrow if they wanted. But of course, they want the billions of dollars. So sure. that's why it works. So our proposal uh, is based on a similar model. Why? Because it works and Canadians are familiar with it. Okay. So we basically say the federal government um, should establish a fund and agree to pay any province who agrees to add uh, you know, a schedule of dental services to the services that they already cover. Okay. It's as simple as that. Simple as that. Okay. All right. That's helpful to some of the questions that have really perplexed me around this because I love this principle of universal dental care. I completely agree with everything you've said, but now I want to spend our, the rest of us, most of the rest of this conversation talking about how you actually administer this. Why don't you explain to the listeners? Cause not everybody's you know, politically mm -hmm. savvy like you are, even myself. What is the office of the parliamentary budget officer and what's this report here that I've got in my hands called the cost estimate of a federal dental care program for uninsured Canadians? Sure. Well, you know, it's not a question of savviness. I thought PBO was a band when I first went to Parliament. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's the Parliamentary Budget Officer. It's an independent officer of Parliament and they exist to help parliamentarians. And they do a few things. But one thing they do is they assist parliamentarians with costing. Okay. various programs. And that's a very important part of what we do. In fact, um, 
it was told to me when I was first elected that the, the most important role of a parliamentarian is to scrutinize spending. So the executive, the government, they spend. And what our job is to do is to really act as a watchdog on executive spending. And so part of this is we have this professional accounting office because the PBO is really a, a skookum accountant. And he's got a team. I think it's now a she, actually. Um, but at the time, it was a he. Uh, they will help us do that. So I sent a letter to the parliamentary budget officer in January of 2020. Mm-hmm. And I asked their office to cost out, not a universal program, um, but the first step, what I call the down payment. And so the program that we uh, asked them to cost out was, um, we, we said, for everybody who makes under $90,000 a year, why do we pick that? Because that that was the median household income okay for canada okay not individual but household mm-hmm. so you know 50 percent of people make over that 50 percent under so we said anybody who makes underneath that who does not have coverage dental coverage and they also do like comprehensive research not just costing but they actually just basically roll their sleeves up and find out everything about it yeah so they found originally that there were about four and a half million canadians who fall in that category since the COVID issue has struck, and why I, I asked them in January was several more million have lost their uh, work, have lost their jobs, and yeah. therefore their work benefits. Right, exactly. So that number ballooned to six and a half million people. Incredible. Yeah. So we said, so how much would that cost? And so we had to give them parameters. So we gave them a schedule. And okay. by the way, uh, we have a comprehensive schedule of of dental services it even includes orthodontics uh orthodontics crowns Mm -hmm. fillings as well as the basic preventative stuff like you know x-rays um fillings exams and uh cleanings yeah which is so important and we said uh you know how much would it cost to cover those people and and frankly they they came to what i was quite astounded uh, not a a very reasonable number yeah you know about about uh, $1.5 billion. Yeah, the number didn't seem very high. No. I mean, it's a big number, but when you put it in a federal context, and especially when you look at how much money the uh, Liberal government spend in these days, yeah. it looks like a drop in the bucket. Well, I don't want to <laughs> stop for your next question, but to, but I think it's a really important point to, to, uh, to put that in context fiscally right now. Uh, right now in Canada, uh, from all sources, uh, federal government, provincial government, we spend about $265 billion a year. Right. On our healthcare system. Yeah. So if you think so about this it, this is like billion. less than half percent. This is like a point exactly. percent so of overall. Billion. Yeah. Yeah. So if I said to you, you know, would that be a wise investment of money? You could cover six and a half million Canadians right now who don't have any dental right. coverage. And by the way, for those over 90,000, the theory was that if you're making over $90,000, mm-hmm. you probably can afford to cover yourself um, if you really needed sure. to. Although, like I said, in principle, I want everybody covered under our universal system. And as I said earlier, I think it's important from a policy point of view, because if everybody's got a stake in it, uh, then it's hard for government to cut it. Like try to take away healthcare from Canadians today. Yeah, it never happened. Couldn't do it. No. But if you're only covering poor people, or you're covering Indigenous people, or you're covering, yeah. you know, these select groups, yeah. then um, that makes it easier for governments. And that's the history of of it's a really good point of of the program in our country. Yeah. So let's get into the um, the sort of nitty gritty of a universal dental care program. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is, uh, do we have enough dentists in Canada today to actually administer? Like if you could wave your magic wand on, 
and everybody's got coverage, do we actually have enough dentists today? Yes, in a word, yes. In the 60s, when Tommy Douglas was pushing the Liberal government to bring in Medicare, um, it was actually prior to that John Diefenbaker, who uh, a progressive conservative, who commissioned a report led by a conservative Supreme Court judge named Emmett Hall. Mm -hmm. And that led to the Hall report, which I think was 1962 or 63. And to everybody's surprise, the Hall report ended up recommending public health care. And it was in that report that he found that we didn't have enough dentists. Okay. But um, I checked into that a few years ago, and the number of dentists per capita that was considered necessary that we were under in the 60s, yeah. we surpassed that long ago. So yeah. we've got- Well, I did listen. Dentists. I took the time to listen to your uh, town hall you hosted earlier in the year. And I'm, I'm going to quote numbers. It might be completely accurate. But if I recall, when that report was initially done, it was- uh, I think one dentist for every about 4,000 Canadians. And now I think it's down into the 2,000 range. It's almost in half. Mm -hmm. And I can speak on a sort of anecdotal level of my wife, who's a dentist here in Vancouver. There are a ton of dentists here in the city. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, this is, I understand that uh, the Metro Vancouver has the highest number of dentists per capita of any other municipality in the country, which leads to another question then, which is more, okay, we have enough dentists, but do we have enough dentists in the right places? So if you look at like one of your colleagues, Charlie Angus, I think he's up in mm -hmm. North, is it? Uh, Timmins, Tim, Timmins Tim, Bay. Yeah. yeah. Northern Ontario. Northern Ontario. Uh, probably pretty hard pressed to find dentists up in that part of the country. So one of the challenges I would assume you would find is if we did give this universal dental care to all of these Canadians, many of them are in remote communities, indigenous people in Northern communities. How do you get dental care to those people? Well, that's a great question. And it's it's a problem that exists, I think, independent of, you know, whether we have universal dental care or not, sure. you know, which is a question of access. Yeah. So so uh, it's it's a it's a perennial problem in a country as big as Canada, where we do have, you know, rural areas and remote areas and trying to ensure that we have uh, equitable access across country is is a challenge. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's a it's just something that has to be addressed. But I don't think that depends on uh, on whether we make uh, access to a public health care system or not. Like mm -hmm. if, if there's not enough dentists in, you know, Nunavut right now, yeah, uh, there's not going to be magical number of dentists there even after this. So I think that's a separate issue that we need to, to, to deal with. And by the way, I hear that from all the professions, the Canadian Medical Association, yeah. um, the Canadian Nurses Association. They've been calling on the federal government to recognize a serious human resources, a health professional human resources crisis yeah is how they call it and so it's a it's a fundamental problem that we have to address in any event yeah but uh what, what i think is important to reassure the dental profession as well is that uh what i'm uh, the, the the program that we're proposing here should not make any dentist worried in any way that their this will affect their income because the economics of a dentist's office are um you know they're significant and they're even different than a doctor's office i mean the investment in equipment and the number of people that have to be employed yeah so i i think we have to tread very carefully and my if my magic wand waving is that we we retain the fee schedule so dentists should not have any worry that were we to go into a public system that that they're they wouldn't receive the same remuneration or not be paid fairly and the the model for that to me is fee schedules for docs. 
I do think, though, that it's important to address that earlier question, because if you were to wave your magic wand, you still have to have the dentist willing to administer this, mm -hmm. the, this care in these northern and remote communities or in these small towns. And I got a couple of ideas of my own. I'm going to yeah. throw. Well, we'll it have to away. incentivize it. Maybe, yeah. uh, you know, in fact, in some ways, maybe it would be easier to incentivize the location of professionals like dentists in remote areas. Yeah. If you did have a public system, because then you could actually build in, uh, you know, the kind of extra payments that would be required to incentivize people to locate. Right. Them. Well, let's okay. You know, let's talk about this yeah. a little bit more now, because because it gives a good example. Like I grew up in the town uh, in, in a town called Port Alberni, mm -hmm. small town. Uh, there was only a couple of dentists there. I mean, three or four at the time. And they're kind of having to compete against each other um, for for business because you know it is a privately run platform uh, back in the '80s and it is today. Um, what are the what are the have you thought about the idea of maybe having um, like for example you can have GPs that uh, are on uh, here in BC like there are certain uh, general practitioners that actually collect a government paycheck like they they're, they're getting a pension they're they're almost employed like a nurse. Uh, is so to speak. So there are some who choose not to run their own practice. They work for the provincial government. Most of them work in the downtown east side. So my wife's best friends do that. So I know about this. Mm -hmm. um, have you entertained the idea of having some dentists? Because I know this report and this proposal is assuming that we are going to continue to use the privately administered dental services of the existing dentists in our country. But what about for towns like Port Alberni, even more remote places like Timmins mm -hmm. to say, okay, you know what, Don, we're going to, um, uh, you just graduated from university. Uh, you want some certainty in your income and uh, we're going to send you up to Timmins and we're going to pay you. You'll even get a federal pension. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I love that question. And that, um, you know, you're, you're really sort of exploding the whole, the, the whole myriad of issues that come into this. Um, and it really is kind of like pulling a thread on a, on a sweater, right? I mean, yeah. you just like all I want to say is I just want everybody to be able to get their teeth fixed when they need to. Yeah. And, and let's do that through a public system. But when you start putting the lens on it, like you just did, Andrew, yeah. um, the possibilities are endless and it is yeah. an opportunity for systemic reform. So things like, um, yeah, salary dentists. Right. I and mean, that's a big issue even among doctors. You know, sure. like many people think that we should be we should be setting up. A, a section of our healthcare system through salary docs. Yeah. It shouldn't just be fee for service. It's got its place, fee yeah. for service, but there's a lot of doctors that don't want it. And um, uh, there's a lot of advantages to having salaries. Same thing in dentists. It's it's not a common issue now. Yeah, I mean, there are some salary dentists like in the Canadian Armed Forces and there yeah. are certain niche areas, but that's one area. Um, community clinics, um, fly-in clinics, like, you know, one thing about, let's say you flew in a dental team every month to remote areas and they took care of the community at that time. Um, as you said, the incentivization. I, I introduced a bill in Parliament in uh, back in about 2010, I think it was, where for medical professionals who agree to, um, after university, to go to an underserved area. Uh -huh. And then, you know, it's pretty easy to get the metrics, like whatever the per capita underserving is. Yeah. Then for every year that they stay there, you wipe out 20% of their student debt. Right for on. five years, it's gone. Sure. Boom. So people graduate you know, with $100,000 of, of debt. Yeah. And then the hope is, is that once they're established there. They might stay. They might stay. Yeah. Um, there's other, even other uh, policies I've, I've heard of, which is in dental schools and even in medical schools, they're doing a better job now of actually making part of the selection criteria students that are applying from remote areas. Mm. 
So when I went to university a million years ago, it was, you know, law school was GPA and your LSAT. Yeah, That's sure. all they cared about. Yeah. Well, if, if they say, well, you know, a certain number of spots we want come from Port Alberni or, or other areas, because the theory then is that if people are coming to university from those communities, they may go back go to back. those communities. Yeah. So I think there's a, a and, and finally, I think the possibilities of virtual care uh, are revolutionizing healthcare. Now, obviously, dentistry, it's pretty tough to fill a filling you know, remotely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But things like, let's say you set up um, some diagnostic equipment in Innovit, and you had a trained technician there, and maybe an X-ray, uh, you know, radiology, you know, some with radiology, and, mm -hmm. and maybe even a, um, a dental hygienist, um, who could take the X-rays and then send those X-rays down to a dentist, say your wife who's living mm -hmm. down here in the Lower Mainland, sure. and she could read read those uh, those X-rays. There are certain kinds of services that I think will be able to be delivered remotely. And finally, uh, there is this concept now. Uh, I don't want to scare dentists, but uh, you know the nurse practitioner that's been created. So someone that's got additional training from a nurse, not as much as a doctor, but they can do some of those things that are in between a doctor and a nurse. There's been some proposals from dentists to create that kind of position. So you give a dental hygienist additional education so that they can do some of the simple procedures. Um, so I think all of those yeah. ideas are worth well, exploring. This is, this is what your uh, the fellow that was on your your town hall talking Brandon about. Brandon Doucette. Brandon said about, talked about dental therapists. That's the term. Yeah, dental therapists. So the idea is you've got uh, a dental hygienist or um, uh, someone who's maybe maybe even a, a GP who's been given some extra training on how to do some kind of basic procedures. So I asked my my wife Crystal about this, and she said, well. Uh, Simple procedures are always simple until they go wrong. Right. And so I guess one of my questions would be like, you know, if you have these dental therapists, um, how do you ensure, number one, that when they start to do a simple extraction and it turns into something really bad, not to the, their own fault, but just because that they, you know, they pull, it, pull that tooth off and now all of a sudden there's something worse underneath, that you've got someone nearby at hand who can help treat that patient maybe they don't maybe it's not that bad maybe it's a simple extraction but how do you ensure the quality of work is still there mm -hmm. um and uh and and so anyways those are some of my basic questions with this concept of a dental therapist because it sounds good in a kind of utopian world of like converting some of these dental hygienists or gps into like pseudo dentists mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on this well i think those are extremely valid concerns and it has to be really carefully thought out i mean patient mm -hmm. safety and it has to be first and foremost, and it would have to be very, very carefully um, figured out. Um, so I, I think those those concerns are are really legitimate. There's always resistance to change, Andrew, and uh, you know there's, there's some fear and there's some, you know, I, I think there's even an economic issue because uh, I think we have to really, really respect and appreciate and understand the economics of a dentist's practice as well, because. You don't just want to leave all the hard things for a dentist, you know, necessarily, you know, m for various reasons, you know, the you may want a dentist to have access to the simple extractions and the simple fillings, etc. Uh, you don't want to take those away and leave them with the compl complex procedures only. Um, so I think we have to move very, very deliberately and, and carefully in this area. By the way, that proposal is from a dentist. So Brandon mm. Doucette is, yeah, is right. a dentist himself. So when he floats the idea... Uh, I take it that he must be aware that there are some procedures that he believes can be safely done by someone else. But my final point would be, 
I think that this should be done on a pilot project, but mainly in maybe most effectively in those areas that there is no service in. Right. So I'm not talking about, you know, ner- uh, dental therapists here in Vancouver sure. at first, but yeah. maybe, maybe mm-hmm. if, if you're talking about a remote community that has no dental uh, services at all, perhaps having a hygienist and a dental therapist trained there who can do certain things under the supervision and instruction of a, of a dentist for carefully thought out procedures, maybe that's where you pilot these things. That's a really smart idea. I like that. That's a smart idea because I think about my wife when she was in uh, UBC Dental Dental School, part of their program is you are required to go out and do some volunteer work. And so her and her friend Jen flew out to Haida Gwaii and they spent a week there working on um, on patients. And so you could maybe theoretically have a dental hygienist that goes out with them or uh, that does some of these more advanced work or basic work for a dentist, more advanced work for a hygienist, mm-hmm. but they're nearby so that if something goes wrong, they can jump in and help out right away. Well, and even things like, you know, you know, again, I don't want to oversimplify this because, uh, but even things like basic exams. Yes. Um, perhaps you could have dental therapists who could, who could do a competent dental exam. Now, again, you know, you want the trained eye of a dentist who's, who's looking for, for things and can spot things. I don't want to simplify that, but, but, you know, maybe I'd rather maybe if you had a dental therapist in one of these underserved areas who's who's spotting early issues, you know, that's a better advancement for dental care for that community than than for them not to, to have nothing at all. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about you, you touched on this earlier about having a fee guide and and talking to my wife and, and preparing for this interview today. I've talked to a few other her friends that are dentists, practicing dentists, have their own practices and. And they have a concern about this concept, right? They, they're, they're worried that, oh, you know, what's this going to do to their business? And it sounds to me, actually, if anything, it's going to do more for their business because there's going to be more patients, potentially. But the real question, this is where Laurel Collins, I, she, she actually said, I needed to have you come in for this question. <laughs> so she's so you're in the hot seat oh, now. Got it, okay. So let's take a, an example. Let's say Jasmine comes in. I'm her dentist. Um, she's on this new program that you rolled out. And she's got a cracked tooth. So there's... Various ways to treat Jasmine's situation. First one is I load her up with a bunch of Tylenols, say, have a nice day. Let me know how things pan out, which is kind of the only option right now for for Jasmine. Mm -hmm. Second option, which is the most common one, we're going to pull your tooth. Third option is we're going to try and seal the crack. And then the fourth option is we're going to extract it, put a post in and put a implant. And uh, in fact, even from there, you can get in like porcelain implants. I mean, so your treatment can go from a $5 bottle of, uh, of, of Tylenol up to a $4,000, $6,000 porcelain tooth. Um, where, who makes the decision? Because it's either the government, it's the patient, or it's the dentist. Wow, that is a, that's a superb question. It's, you know, it's a very theoretical one, you know, since... Since we're not, you know, we haven't even agreed at a federal level to even establish this program. But what I would say is this. Um, there's this phrase that I, I like to use in these circumstances, which is you can have as much social justice as you're willing to pay for. And I saw this in pharmacare. There there are certain lobby groups that say, well, if you bring in pharmacare, there's going to be a, a reduction in the quality of access to medicine. You won't be able to get the medicine needed. By the way, that was a very strong argument against Medicare in the 60s, okay. where there were uh, uh, big lobby groups that said, you know, if you bring in Medicare, you won't be able to get the doctor that you choose, and you're going to get substandard care, and the state will decide, uh, you know, what happens to you. Well, 
that that absolutely does not need to be the case and in my view should not and would not be the case so what i would do is we want to establish a fee schedule that's built into it quality care and i think you also want to build into the system that the the primary driver of the appropriate care is the professional um now the thing about den dentistry is unlike a lot of other kinds of um services is there is a cosmetic component to things and I think you got to build a flexible system that the patient gets competent um, quality care from the dentist but you could build into it that the person if they wanted to could perhaps choose to pay for uh, you know uh, an additional quality of care perhaps mm -hmm. um, you know, we do that in, in, in certain cases. So you would but then see this being very similar to how the private health care, health insurance programs work today. So I, I work for an employer. I've got dental coverage for the basic stuff. They're going to cover 80%. Cosmetic stuff, they're not going to cover anything. There's a cap at how much I get treatment I get per year, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. so are you proposing something very similar to that? Well, sure. And that, that's the thing is um, we do it now. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. so right now, millions of Canadians have dental coverage and fee schedule decisions are made every day. In fact, I went to the dentist right. about about eight months ago and I had to get a filling redone. And the amalgam, the, you know, the white stuff was, I think it was $300. And the dentist said, now, he said, that thing's going to last about six to 10 years. Yeah. If I put a gold filling in, it'll you'll never see me again. Right. And that was twelve hundred bucks. Right. And so we Yeah, this is a good example. We then. submitted it to, to my dental plan. I've got dental coverage and pretty crappy coverage, by the way. So anybody thinks part of my terms have good coverage. <laughs> yeah, but you got a golden pension. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's true. Well it's <laughs> silver, but still yeah, I can't complain. Um, um but I, I used to work for the Teamsters Union and that, that no, that was a Cadillac <laughs> dental plan, let me tell you. I tell you, I used to walk in dentist's office and they would like, you know, make me espresso coffee. They love me. <laughs> but pretty mediocre plan I have, and my wife has a plan, so we have the co coverage. Yeah. And they wouldn't cover the gold filling. Okay. So um, I had a choice. Yeah. I either get the two hundred or the three hundred dollar filling paid for by my plan, or I pay an extra nine hundred bucks. Okay. And I chose so to so what you're proposing then is very similar to the existing it could platform. yeah so so the the, the messages I want to send to dentists though is yeah. number one you're going to be okay your incomes are going to be protected this yeah. isn't a plan to 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 make sure dentist you know or to to uh, you know cut the hair of dentists they're highly trained professionals that take a lot of risk yeah and we want to make sure they're happy number two and they've invested a ton of money not only in their education but in their practices yes. and by the way I, I want to just address where that anxiety comes from because I've met with the Canadian Dental Association dentists and they are justifiably nervous about this yeah because remember when I said earlier over the last 70 years provinces over here there have had these little programs here or there here's what happens they establish a tariff it's crappy and then when the governments start to lose interest in it they cut the tariffs to the point where I've been told by dentists that they were subsidizing the care. Sure. And then they cut it. So dentists' only experience with any kind of public program yeah. has been bad. Yes, that's what my right? wife talked about. She what said, every dentist like, will tell you. She so said it's hard to find dentists who will even accept some of these uh, small programs that exist because there's so much often work involved with so little pay, they almost have to do it out of the goodness yeah. of their heart. Well, it's a problem with Patrick. Like even, I think it's... Um, I think it's people coming out of the federal correction system get something like 500 bucks a year. So you walk into a dentist's office and these are people with serious issues, you know, $500. Yeah. So, you know, dentists, they're, they're, they have a heart. So they, they probably do some basic work and end up doing, 
eating $2,000 of the service out of yeah, their own sure. pockets. So that's very, I understand that. And so when we construct this, I, I want to reassure them that we're talking about a universal system where they're remunerated fairly and well, yeah. where quality care is made available to Canadians and it's done based on um, the, the best diagnostic and treatment plans that the dentist has. And I think I think that's the way our healthcare system works sure. too. Okay. You know, so I, you know, I, I think we've done it with healthcare. We can do it with dental care. Okay. Okay. This is good, Don. So on the let's carry on this topic. One more point I want to bring up about dental care. Who's deciding? Because it sounds like what you've proposed at this point is something very similar to what the insurance program already runs uh, for people who are employed with an insurer. Um, is you know, patient like again, Jasmine comes in. She's onto this program now. There's a fee guide in place. Um, they decide what kind of uh, you know treatment is our options for her, like your your gold um, filling as an example. And the dentist is able to say, look, Jasmine, based on what you've given us here, these are this is what you qualify for. You can do the gold filling, but it's going to cost you an extra eight hundred dollars. She goes away, thinks about it, comes back, makes a decision. Um, one of the other factors that makes the cost of dentistry so prohibitive. And actually, if you do the research, the cost of dentistry, uh, like dent dental care, has been rising at a faster rate than inflation. Like there's an inflation, it's kind of like housing, right? Like we've seen housing inflation far outpace mm -hmm. regular inflation. And one of the reasons is because there is a small number of uh, companies that kind of control the supply chain system for dental, dental offices. And I'm going to name some of them. So uh, Patterson, Henry Schein, and Sinclair Dental. And they're probably going to shoot me for saying their names, but I don't care because these companies have an incredible amount. They have like a, almost like an oligopoly. So when dentists go and order supplies, when dentists get regular supplies uh, that you have in any dental office or um, specific things like a crown that you have to get custom built, um, these companies are making an absolute fortune. Has, has your program, your universal dental program, taken in consideration the fact that if you roll this out to on, on, on the public purse, okay, on taxpayers' dime, there's companies like this that are going to make an absolute fortune uh, by having just that many more patients needing, you know, bonding, needing crowns, needing all sorts of materials that'll just be passed on through the dentist's office because the dentist don't mark up this material. They just, it's incorporated as part of their business. Is that something you thought about? Uh, not not as specific as that, Andrew, but but I have thought generally because of our study on pharmacare, the concept of uh, when you cover 37 million Canadians for something, you get the opportunity for bulk buying in economies of scale. Sure. So so we actually costed that out in pharmacare, and that's one of the leading cost savers. That's why in pharmacare, uh, the numbers are a bit different. 20% of Canadians don't have any pharmacare coverage right okay. now and and a lot of others have substandard coverage you know just because they have coverage doesn't mean it's good there's high yeah. co-payments there's annual limits etc um there's it's been estimated it's a 40 percent savings if you if you centralize the bulk purchasing sure. just from purchasing yeah and we know that from from real life experiences the u.s veterans um uh department in the u.s yeah provides all of the pharmaceuticals for for Quite a sizable, uh, you know, and big population, big population yeah. of former service people in the U.S. Um, forty percent coverage. New Zealand, forty percent uh, a cut in cover in in their costs. So when they sit to Pfizer and say, "Look, give me your best price on thirty-seven million Canadians," yeah, uh, they can cut it. It's you know, 
It's the old Costco toilet paper is cheaper yeah, at Costco for sure. So the same. Yeah, it's a, it's a con. It's a, it's buying power. It is, and so as I'm, long as it's not Trudeau negotiating, because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> then he's gonna yeah. just write the check. Like, have to well, how many this, zeros yeah. does that need to have put him behind this check? <laughs> yeah, so this assumes competent negotiation. He'll never come on um, my podcast, by the way. But, so I <laughs> take digs at him all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I was gonna say, uh, so we did not do that costing on dental care. Okay. Um, but I'm sure those savings are there. So let's say you have the federal government that says, okay, we're covering all Canadians. Yeah. Now we're going to bust some of these monopolies. And we're going to be, let's say, I don't know what the products are that these companies are monopolizing, whether it's anesthesia yeah. or dental equipment yeah. or, or whatever the stuff is. But all of a sudden you've got, you've got on the consumer side, uh, you've evened up the the monopolistic issues. Sure. So I, I'm sure their savings are. Yeah. Now, by the way, this program that was costed out, Assumes that the federal government picks up the entire cost okay. of this of this program, and it assumed no savings, and uh, so so I think that one point five billion dollars that it it assumes could be even lower. Could could be lower by yeah. things like this. Sure, you know, maybe a better, more efficient way to supply dentist offices that, uh, that right. are difficult. To, you know, individual dentists don't have that bargaining power, but maybe the federal government would. Okay. Well, I think that's something that you'll definitely, um, I'll leave you to take that away because yeah, um, you may point. not be know, know about that sort of street level intel, but that is a major reason why people think these dentists make a fortune. You know, you talked about the $1,200 gold bonding, but you know, when you're having to buy that through only one of like four, four suppliers in the entire country, um, and they all know that it, with each other. I wouldn't go as far as saying there's price fixing going on, but um, that's a big, big factor. So keep that in the back of your mind. One of the things that I know it's really important to you is also addressing people with developmental dif- disabilities. And so I'm going to throw this idea because you mentioned it very early. You mentioned the word pilot. And I thought, why not? I mean, I don't know what, you know, what heartless Canadian could could actually not agree to support people with disabilities, people with developmental disabilities, and use that as a pilot program. Like what, have you have you talked with anybody about the idea of saying, hey, you know what, we've got a great idea here, but instead of trying to roll this out nationwide to millions and millions of Canadians, you know, tens of millions of Canadians, and maybe get it wrong, we start by piloting this with people who really probably could use it the most and are the least able to take care of themselves. Well, first of all, thank you so much for raising that, that, that population that, uh, is often forgotten. And um, at one of the town halls I had, I specifically had some people, in fact, she was a lawyer um, by training who was a parent of a child with developmental disabilities. And she's the person, she's gone on a crusade to point out um, the special needs of, um, of, a, of, a, of a population that often can't speak for themselves and, and needs, needs special attention and they don't get it. And so they have serious, like if you have someone who's nonverbal or someone who has, you know, difficulty, you know, can't fit in a chair, a typical chair. Yeah. Um, you know what happens? These people go without oral health care and they already have physical and mental challenges to boot. So this is, it was heart heartbreaking to hear these stories and to, and to, and then the pain that they experience, sure. but are unable and to articulate. And they can't express it. They can't express it. Right. So there's a. I mean, it's terrible. Boy, it's, it's it's terrible. Cruel. I mean, it'll yeah. challenge our our notion yeah. as a caring, compassionate society. Sure. To answer your question specifically, we did not consider a pilot specifically for that population, but but that should be the first group of people that we we yeah. try to cover. What we did try to when we so I'm a again I'm a universal I'm a universalist. Mm-hmm. So if I could if I was health minister, 
I would simply cover every Canadian, I'd roll it into our healthcare system for everybody, and I'd do that within the next 24 months. Mm-hmm. Boom, done. Okay. It's what we did with healthcare. With with healthcare, we didn't say, okay, well, blue-eyed people get their arms set. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, tall people can have you know scoliosis fixed. It was everybody goes in and the system adjusts. By the way, if it's one thing COVID has taught us, it's that we are capable of massive societal change quickly. We yeah, are very adaptable. I sometimes think, and I, I think this is one of my accusations of liberals. They always make fun of me and NDP. They say we're liberals in a hurry. What I say they are, <laughs> I, I think, you know, they, they, they're all about, oh, change comes slowly. You got to be patient. Nonsense. You know, it's been 50 years since mm-hmm. Tommy Douglas raised this uh, about dental care. That's half a century. Yeah. It's time to ask ourselves a question. Do we or do we not yeah. believe that having access to basic oral health care should be part of our public health yeah. system or not? Yeah. And I think that's a no-brainer. Yeah. But this is a really long-winded way of answering a question. But when we thought about implementing it, we thought of a couple different target groups. We thought, well, what, what if we did it for children under 18? Sure. And I thought it would be a good political uh, pitch because who wouldn't, who, what heartless yeah. person would say no? How could you say no to that? No, I don't think children under 18 yeah. should have you yeah. know, their basic dental care needs met. Um, we ended up taking a uh, an economic sort of slice saying, okay, well, how about everybody with, let's cover everybody who's of middle or low income, mm-hmm. right down to zero. Mm-hmm. So middle income to poor. Let's start with them on the assumption wealthy people probably are getting covered. Yeah. So that's where we chose to go. Um, but that would probably include everybody with developmental disabilities anyway. Sure. I don't know too many developmental disabilities. Yeah, that are div- multimillionaires. Disabled, yeah, that are, are wealthy. Yeah. And if their parents are wealthy, they're probably getting access to oral health care for their yeah. children anyway. Not that they should have to, but they probably are. Yeah. So, but thanks for raising that because it was yeah. a population I wasn't really aware of until it was brought to my attention. Okay. Um, going back to, uh, one of the ideas of having, we talked about having salaried dentists and getting dentists to buy into this program. Now, maybe this question doesn't apply now because you've explained to me that there'll be a fee guide and that the dentists aren't going to be asked to perform certain procedures at a lower cost. But I'll throw this out as another idea. You know, dentists, like most uh, you know wealthier, high-income earning Canadians, uh, feel like they're taxed too much. So one of the ideas, as you mentioned earlier, is to tell young dentists who are coming out of, out of dental school that will carve off 20% of your uh, student loans if you go work out in um, tuk 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 for your first four years of your, your career. But for those senior dentists who already paid off those loans, maybe what you could do is say to them, look, it, we'll give you a tax break. You treat a certain number of, you know, at care, like at need patients, patients that run under this federal dental care program at a slightly lower cost, and we'll lower your tax rate by 10 or 15%. Hmm, that's a novel idea. Yeah. But I think the main point uh, that is really fundamentally um, interesting that you're raising, Andrew, is this provides an opportunity for us to do a root and branch examination of the entire practice and industry and finances and delivery of dental care. And I, I think that's something a government should constantly be doing. You know, sure. I sometimes say that the two things that I've noticed federal government does not do well in this country is we don't do long-term planning and we don't innovate. And I think we need more of those. So I think sitting down with all the stakeholders and and having a real open, transparent discussion about how the industry is working um, 
is it could, could result in a lot of really creative ideas like that. Yeah. Um, well, speaking I mean, of COVID, I, I come with, I mean, look at all the innovation that's happened because of COVID that's been pushed on us, forced huma some of it's humanity, forced, yeah. humanity to kind of change right down to like something as simple as a Zoom presentation. Well, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Mouseland. It's this sort of cartoon that uh, based on the Tommy Douglas speech. And uh, it's about the mice who keep electing black cats. And then when they throw them out, they elect white cats and <laughs> they keep going back and forth. And of course, finally, the little Tommy Douglas mouse says, maybe we shouldn't be electing cats. Uh, <laughs> but uh at the end of it, the 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 pitch is uh, beware of the little guy with an idea, right? And the idea that I have here, the only idea that I'm putting forward is 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 it possible as a G7 country, a country as wealthy as ours, can we make sure that everybody can get their dental oral health needs met? Yeah. And I think we can. And the rest of it is just a matter of detail, and it's a matter of equity, and it's a matter of being open and fair. And I think. You know, dentists are the key professionals in this. We got to bring them on. They're the ones doing the work. We can't develop a system that they're unhappy with or doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. um, but again, we can negotiate fee schedules for internists, yeah. for cardiac surgeons, sure. for psychiatrists. Yeah. Pretty sure we can negotiate an acceptable fee schedule for dentists yeah. and, and make sure that they're, uh, they're fairly remunerated and happy. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you said a point earlier that I think is really important. You know, uh, even if... I'm not even talking about fee schedules coming down. I don't see any reason why fee schedules have to be adjusted downward. Right. But but there's very few businesses that that would reject this concept. I can bring another 33% sure. market share to you. Yeah. Now, that's got to be good. Yeah. It's got to be good. Absolutely. And uh, so from an economic point of view, I think it. we have to be careful. We have to listen. We've got to be nimble. Uh, we have to be fair. But it can be done. Yeah. Well, be, yeah, you have to do it right because if you were to roll this out and dental supply companies like the ones I've mentioned, like the Sinclair and Patterson's of the world or the dentists themselves start making a substantial amount more income. I mean, great for my wife and her friends, but as a politician, you're going to get crucified for all of a sudden taking a bunch of Canadian taxpayers dollars and putting them in the pockets of people who are already at the highest end of the income earning spectrum. Well, to um, me though, again, we, I, I end where we started. Um, you know, <laughs> If if your child needed a cochlear implant, you know how much that costs. What, what does it cost? You know, you and I in a few years are going to be going for you know the a bypass, right? Um, which are now done routinely. Uh, what does that cost? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking procedures that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Canadians don't even know what it costs. Mm -hmm. We've constructed a system that works, mm -hmm. and 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 I think we can do it efficiently. Um, so that's that's the part of it. You know, in the 1960s when they brought in Medicare, you know that the doctors went on strike. Oh, did they really? For 23 days in Saskatchewan. But the government didn't buckle. And so some of these major forces, like some of these companies you're talking about, yeah. their interests are important, but they're not more important than Canadians. Mm -hmm. And they're not more important than Canadian That's a really patients. good point. Yeah. And I, again, my point here isn't, I'm not on a capitalist war path here. I'm mm -hmm. not, my goal isn't to, you know, impoverish necessary players in the industry mm -hmm. is to ensure that people are covered while ensuring that those people are but if people if those institutions are going to fight this yeah and put their own perhaps excessive profits over the healthcare needs of a disabled child yeah or an indigenous kid in prince rupert who doesn't have yeah uh you know who's who's got three teeth that are riding out of their heads we know what side of the fence you're gonna be on that's right yeah i guess politics okay. it's a matter of choice yeah yeah well, that's good well, in wrapping this up, I will leave you with one more idea, and then I want to ask you about why um, this hasn't gone through yet. 
But one of the things that's been brought to my attention over the years is the number of um, qualified dentists who've come to Canada, but they can't practice here because the bar to get uh, certified in Canada and BC is so high. In fact, my own dentist has, when you look at his support staff, more than half of them are actually dentists from other countries, but they're cleaning teeth and they're doing like CDA work, certified dental assistant work. And so for fitting in the supply of, of dentists, especially ones in Northern communities, imagine if we went to some of these immigrant uh, immigrants who've come to this country and, and I've, I don't know about you, but I've had the odd time where I jump in a taxi in Toronto and I find out that the, the taxi driver is like a, a doctor from another country. But yeah, okay. safest place to have a heart attack is in a taxi cab in New York City, apparently. Yeah, right, yeah. probably, yeah. <laughs> so there's another idea is to maybe we have to have a two-tiered um, qualification system where we say, okay, well, we've got people like my wife who's a qualified dentist. She's met all the board exams, gone through the training in this country. And so she can do all procedures. But then maybe you have this other set of dentists who maybe even they've got 20 years of experience, but it's 20 years of experience of doing dentistry practice in rural India, but they're still going to be far more qualified than you and I. And there's this gap of people up in Northern BC and Northern Ontario who aren't getting support and say to them, look, we'll, we'll pay you to go work up in these communities, and, but you're, you're limited to this kind of work. Oh, this microphone's more qualified than I am. Uh, <laughs> you, you wouldn't want me in your mouth uh, at all. I've got no, no three-dimensional skills whatsoever. Uh, Boy, you just, I mean, you just, you put, again, your finger on another really, really important issue, which is not only foreign credentials, which is a serious problem with our country. We don't yeah. recognize foreign credentials. And that's, that's, there's some good reason for that. Sure. I mean, you you got to have some, some standard, but that's the right. problem but getting them recertified yeah. in this country is so right. onerous. Well, let me, I'll, I'll, and it shouldn't be. Listen, I'll, I'll, I'll take my, uh, my gloves off here. Before I was elected, I was a labor, I worked for a trade union, I was a labor lawyer by training. For 16 years, I worked. The biggest unions in this country, strongest unions in this country, are professional associations. Lawyers, doctors, dentists, engineers. You know why? Because they control entry to market. Right. If That, that is the number one uh, you know, dream of a union is to control how many yeah. the, the supply why, of people. Why the top 20 paid doctors in the province of BC are all the ophthalmologists. Absolutely. They the ones decide how many new ophthalmologists come in. Oh, and I, I remember, and I don't know if this is not the case anymore, but I, I think for a period of time, it didn't matter where you got your dental training. You could, you could have gone to Harvard, you could have gone to Oxford. And when you came to Canada, your credentials weren't recognized to practice in Canada. Now, is that a, is that a competency issue mm-hmm. or is that an economic issue? Sure. Now, I think that's changed, by the way. I don't mm-hmm. think that's true anymore. I think there are ways now to do it, but it's still a very tough pathway for foreign trained professionals coming to Canada. But, you know, my grandparents uh, on my mother's side came from Hungary in the early 1900s. And that was part of the set. They specifically wanted Central European, Eastern European people with farming skills to be settling on the prairies. And I think that was a there's that, that's a really smart kind of idea. So why don't we do that now? Why don't we have a specific program to have targeted professionals, say dentists from certain countries, and we incentivize them to settle in rural or underserved areas? Right. Yeah. Now I know we got the Charter of Rights. You can't force people to stay in places, but there's a way to incentivize it. The way they incentivized my grandfather is they said, "Here's a here's a quarter section of land. If you clear it in two years, you get title to it." Right on. That kept him there. Yeah, sure. And it was the beginning of, <laughs> of, of us, you know, being able to, to live in this country. Yeah. So surely there's ways to incentivize that. 
So you put your finger on about solving four problems at once. You know, underserved areas, lack of credential recognition, uh, improving service. And, uh, you know, th these are the kinds of very important... Uh, and helping these new Canadians completely maximize their talent skills and skill set. That's right. As opposed to driving a taxi. 100%. Not to I take mean, anything away from taxi drivers, but, you know. Of course. Well, I mean, an economy works best when everybody is, is working to their potential. Yeah. And if you have policies that are specifically not utilizing people's training, I, no, not a word of a lie. The person who cleans my teeth is a Bulgarian pediatrician. Is that right? Yep. Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, nobody can tell me that Bulgaria did, isn't training their pediatricians to a high degree. Yeah. yeah she came here. And, yeah. and by the way, she actually got, came here, got her credentials recognized, but there were no residencies. So wow. you see the system, there's a lot of problems with our healthcare professional system that I think something as simple as dental care, it's an opportunity for us to maybe take a look at a lot of problems yeah. and improve. Yeah. Improve the system. Bottom line, to have debt, better care for Canadians. Yeah. Well, Don, to wrap this up, you got a great program here, a great concept. I, I, I agree with you. I don't know what Canadian would disagree with this concept. It doesn't make any sense. You've gone to the parliamentary budget office. They've costed this out. You've made it clear that this isn't going to cost taxpayers terribly much, especially in context of what we spend annually. So my big final question to you is why have we not seen this go through? Like what's 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 the problem? And please kind of explain it in layman's terms because mm -hmm. most of our listeners aren't like plugged in politicians like yourself know how the whole thing works. Why why hasn't this been rolled out? Uh, well, I guess uh, the political cheeky answer is because we haven't had a federal NDP government. Okay. I mean, it's simple. I mean, it's it's we're the only federal party that has raised this issue and have championed it. We're the ones who have put this proposal forward. We're driving it forward. I mean, healthcare is a very important issue to us. Um, I, I don't think the Conservative Party actually, um, and I'm trying to be fair to them, I, this is not a shot at them. Mm. They don't really fundamentally philosophically believe in expanding the public healthcare system. That's why they, they don't support pharmacare, right. for instance. Okay. They prefer, they like the private delivery model. The Liberals, um, uh, they, you know, when, when we came out with this program in the 2019 election, it caused them to put it in their first throne speech. They put a sentence in the throne speech that said, dental care is an idea worth exploring. That's what they said. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what, what's the old thing about Mackenzie King? Uh, you know, liberals never do by halves what they can do by quarters. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I just don't think that they feel it as an imperative. But again, I come back to this and I'm not I'm not trying to be melodramatic or, or whatever, but I can tell you when we talk about dental care, when I say anything at all about it, my email gets flooded. Uh, people contact my office. Uh, people come come out of, you know, the communities to, to ex express their problems. I think there's a lot of shame about this, by the way. People are embarrassed when they have poor teeth. There is shame, and as I said earlier, there's a class. There's almost a class aspect to this. Wealthy people have nice teeth. Poor people have bad teeth. Yeah, sure. And and so, you know, if you're talking a third of people, I I think that I want to encourage every Canadian to contact their MP and demand it. Okay. And uh, but why don't we have it? Good I message. Guess because the parties that have ruled this country have not viewed it as a priority, and they have to be pushed mm -hmm. to do it. So. I'm happy to keep pushing. Yeah, keep pushing. But I'd on. like to be in government where I can pull for change. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been great. This is a great conversation, and it's a it's a it's a, a change from what I'm used to having one single topic. But this has been we got to dive into this um, in a pretty serious way. This is a NDP critic 
for Health and Deputy Critic for Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness. Don Davies, you're the MP for Vancouver Kingsway. Very, very passionate and well-spoken individual. Thanks for coming in today. Andrew, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Don.